The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir, the names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome once again to The Dark Word. As always, I am your host, Philip Fracassi, and it's not often I get to say I have a legend on the show, but today we have a legend, and I'm very excited to get into it. So, as always, let's move forward quickly. Brian Keene writes novels, comic books, short stories, and nonfiction. He is the author of over 50 books mostly in the horror, crime, and fantasy genres. They've been translated into over a dozen languages and have won numerous awards. His 2003 novel, The Rising, is credited, along with Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead comic and Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later film, with inspiring pop culture's recurrent interest in zombies. He's also written for such media properties as Doctor Who, Thor, Aliens, Harley Quinn, The X-Files, Doom Patrol, Justice League, Hellboy, Superman, and Masters of the Universe. His work has been praised by the New York Times, History Channel, Howard Stern Show, CNN, Huffington Post, Bleeding Cool, Publishers Weekly, Fangoria, Bloody Disgusting, and Rue Morgue. He also serves on the board of directors for the Scares That Care 501c charity organization. Brian, whew, I got through it, man. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. That, that's a lot to read. <laughs> I know you've done so much, and I only used about half the bio. I could have gone on and on. Um, well, yeah, it's so great to have you. And I'm sure there are a lot of writers who, uh, would love to hear from you. And I have some questions and, and we'll get into all that stuff, but it's, um, you know, I, the, the, the thing that pops into my head first, you know, is that, and you've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing it for over 30 years. Uh, you've been publishing for over 30 years. And what interests me, uh, about your career and you've, and you've talked a little bit about about this in, in one or two of your interviews is that for a lot of your career or m- most of your career, you've had experiences both on the indie publishing side and on what we'll call the big five, big three, whoever you want to call it, the big, you know, the big five side. And I'm curious from where you started to where you are now, what do you think has, what do you think has changed the most between how things were in the late nineties uh, on the indie side, and now, and and the same for Big Five. What do you think of what? What are the big upheavals in those two sides of publishing? Oh boy! Uh, I mean, how long do we? <laughs> I I think for me, undoubtedly, the biggest thing has been the the presence and the power of the indie press. Um, and you know, when when I say that, I'm not talking about fanzines or things like that. I'm talking about, you know, do-it-yourself publishers who are doing paperback or digital or audiobooks or hardcovers. Um, you know, when I was starting out, you know, I sold my first short story in 97. 
And at that time, horror had had just completely crashed and burned as a a marketing category of bookstores. People weren't buying horror novels. The big five weren't publishing horror novels. Um, And as a result of this upheaval in the mid-90s, you saw the small press really start to grow and blossom. Uh, Before that, it had primarily been, you know, there were publishers who did really nice limited editions like Cemetery Dance or Subterranean Press or Gauntlet Press, Borderlands. And then the other half was, you know, these fanzine presses, which are great. I got my start in fanzines, but, you know, it's it's literally put together on a high school copier and you get paid in copies. Um, but with the, the collapse of the genre, you, you saw these presses that sort of rose up and, and took over for, you know, the mid-list for all those paperback horror novels that, that people weren't able to buy anymore. Uh, Necro Publications was was one of the first to really rise to prominence, and, and so many others followed. Uh, later on, Delirium Books and, and others like that. That was huge for the time. Um, but eventually, when horror became popular again, and you know the the big five started publishing it again, uh, a, a lot of those mall press publishers. They didn't, they didn't have plans to deal with that. And many of them went out of business. Right. Um, what you see now more recently, I'd say within the last seven to five years, is, is you see a new crop of indie publishers like Clash Books, Grindhouse, Eraserhead, Valancourt, um, you know, all these other great publishers. And they're once again fulfilling that role of, you know, the mid-list and, and paperback horror but their offerings are far more diverse. Uh, every type of horror fiction is is made available. Um, you know, if you like splatterpunk, there's that. If you like classic stuff that Grady Hendrix wrote about in Paperbacks from Hell, that's all coming back into print. If you like quiet horror, that's back into print. And what's different this time is that those indie publishers are competing directly with the big five. And in some cases... And I know we're not supposed to talk about this, but in some cases they're they're outselling the big five. And, sure. and I know this because yeah. I talked to managers and regional managers at Barnes and Noble and Books a Million and Waterstones and you know other retail stores across the country and, and in the UK. And the indie stuff is is quite often outselling what the big five are putting out. Um, and I find that interesting. Yeah, it seems like there's a bit of a misconception when it comes to big five sales. And, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of different things, you know, you, there's obviously, you know, there's obviously the New York times bestselling writers and there's, you know, you hear about this guy getting a, you know, seven figure deal and all that. But, but then you look at, then you see these articles where it says, well, you know, the average book sold even by big five presses is like in the hundreds. And I don't know. Yeah. And that's accurate, huh? And you're, it seems crazy to me, but that's, that's true. And if you have a committed independent press who has it really comes down to distribution, I mean, there's two things, right? The big differentiations are distribution and marketing. Exactly. Right. And, 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 and you're in an advance, but we'll, we'll leave the advance. We'll leave the money aside for a second, but yeah, it's um, 
Yeah, it's distribution and marketing. And it, but to your point, so many more small presses uh, have distribution now that um, they didn't have, you know, uh, twenty years ago. I mean, that was the biggest the biggest change I think. Right is was the was Amazon because. I had a publishing company in the mid nineties and I remember having like 20 boxes of books in my garage, Yep, you know, and fronting, you know, thousands of dollars to print these books and not, and then having to like ship them to some warehouse in Pennsylvania. So they would distribute them. And it was, it was a, it was a huge, huge, you know, deal. And now oh, yeah. it's, now it's all digital and Amazon on demand. And, but, and, 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 but also the distribution, right? Like flame tree press, has is distributed by Simon and Schuster. You know, a lot of the smaller presses are getting bigger distribution now. So you, in your opinion, is the gap narrowing significantly between big five and independent press? I think it's almost dead even. I, I think it's more than narrowed. I think it's dead even at this point. Um, and and I'll, I'll cite an example here. Uh, I had a, a novel come out the same year, the same month. I had two novels come out. One was The Complex. It was published by an indie publisher, Deadite Press. The other was Pressure, published as a trade hardcover from Macmillan yep. uh, under their Thomas Dunn imprint. Um, the trade hardcover, Macmillan promoted for exactly two weeks. Um, it went out of print within a year. There's never been a paperback edition. Wow. Uh, the complex is still in print, has outsold that original print run of, of the trade hardcover I think two and a half times by now. Um, and, you know, I've promoted both. Uh, the difference is that the difference is, is, is really negligible. It books, bookstores are, have access to both. Well, they had access to both uh, until the trade hardcover went out of print, but there, there wasn't any difference between the two. And, and, Younger listeners probably won't understand. Even a decade ago, that would have been completely reversed. It, it would have been, you know, the mass market book, the, the trade hardcover stayed in print, and the, the little indie published paperback would have gone out of print. So, you know, it you hit the nail on the head. Distribution is key. Um, but the other thing is bookstores have finally learned to adapt. A lot of these indie presses uh they don't allow stores or, or retailers to return the books or they didn't used to right. and now they're going ahead and ordering books anyway even if they're not returnable um you know they'll, they'll make that gamble with authors that they think will sell or with books that they think they can hand sell to their local audience uh so you know booksellers have have begun to adapt in ways that I don't think the big five have. Yeah. And it's interesting using it as an example for, you know, Barnes and Noble is an interesting, interesting case study because I know that recently goes, okay. So like in the, okay. So like in the nineties or early aughts, right. You wanted to be in a borders for those of you who don't know what borders is. It was a big bookstore chain like Barnes and Noble and, um, and Barnes and Noble. And you'd have to like send a book, to like the corporate office and the corporate office would have to like look at your marketing plan and look at the book. And then they would decide how many copies they carried in your, in their chain of bookstores and all that. And then to your point, if they didn't sell in 60 days or whatever, they'd get returned to the publisher. Exactly. 
And now it's weird because like first thing that Barnes and Noble did, which I thought was interesting, was they started giving the managers of the store sort of um, <clears throat> carte blanche to do to carry the books they wanted to carry for their specific store. So you'll see a lot more horror now at specific Barnes and Noble stores, for example, as well as obviously all the wonderful independent stores that are carried. And uh, to your point, yeah, they don't tend to be the only, uh, they don't tend to be quite as adverse to non-returnable books because a lot of the small presses, they don't want to sell books that are returnable because that's going to destroy them. You know, they got to sell what they sell. They got to sell. It's not like Macmillan where it's okay. Well, if you send us 20% of the books back, we pulp it. No big deal. Um, or we put them on their edge remainders or whatever. Um, but the one thing I've run into, and I don't know if you've run into this or if you've run into any other hiccups with, so let's talk about distribution for a second, um, for young authors and new authors is, um, you know, cause the one thing I ran into with, uh, my local Barnes Noble, for example, was they said, well, we don't carry books that are print on demand. We, we don't mind getting books that are not returnable, but if the, if, it, if it's listed as print on demand, even if it's sold through or distributed through Ingram or Simon & Schuster, we don't carry it. Have you run into any of those problems with your books? I haven't. Um, I I have not. And I find that curious. I don't know that it's a, it's a nationwide policy with Barnes and Noble. I think that might be a a store manager's preference. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes depending on the technology used print on demand books can look cheap. Uh, particularly back in the day when it was first starting out. But I don't know that that's the case anymore. Right. Um, I mean, you can slap a a terrible cover on there, you know, drawn with a box of Crayola crayons, and then it can still look like crap. But production-wise, it's going to look pretty good. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know about that. Yeah, it's interesting how I think Amazon and... Lulu, who's been around for a while now, and uh, Ingram Spark, like they all kind of do their own printing, right now. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you know, to your point, I remember when I was writing for Leisure Books. Um, you know, we would do two books a year, two paperbacks a year, one in the spring and one in the fall. And I was one of Leisure's better-selling authors. Um, and they would bring me to New York and we would sit down with the buyer for Barnes and Noble and we would sit down with the buyer for borders and we would do this for a week. You know, every day we'd go to lunch and we'd meet a a buyer for another chain store. And, you know, I would tell them during that lunch, well, here's what the book's about. Here's who it's going to appeal to. Here's what I'm going to be doing to promote it. Here's what the publisher is going to be doing to promote it. And the buyer would make their buy based on that, that lunch meeting. Um, what I find interesting now is, as you said, the, the, the bookstores, the chain bookstores uh, are letting their employees and their staff make these decisions at a store level. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a result, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name anybody here because I, I don't, I don't want to get them in trouble with their regional managers, but I know of uh, at least a dozen Barnes and Nobles that have just mass ordered copies of everything I've got in print because uh, they want a Brian Keene section in their store again. And they haven't had to run that by anybody. We haven't had to sit down and, and go to lunch in New York or any of that. And it's it's an interesting time. Um, I really am curious what it's going to look like in another five to seven years. Hey guys, it's Philip again. 
I wanted to let you know that you can buy any of the books discussed on The Dark Word at The Book House, which is Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com, that's M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com, to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit the actual store in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors we feature here on The Dark Word or at the Book and Film Globe podcast. I want to say almost like the last six months to a year, all of a sudden you see some, you know, if you go on social media, you see all these in, independent horror authors and like, hey, here's my book in my, you know, in Barnes and Noble and here's the horror section in this Barnes and Noble. And, and I'm even like getting like friend requests from Barnes and Noble stores. And oh, yeah. it's really coming. And I'm not, this is not a commercial for Barnes and Noble. Obviously support your independent bookstores, you guys. But, but, but I just, I, it's more of just like a market. It's fascinating for me as a, from a market perspective and a distribution perspective, how those doors are kind of opening where, bef- you know, where a couple of years ago they were, you know, closed pretty tight. Right. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's go into a different subject. So I want to talk to you about something and I read your um, memoir uh, on the road and gr- really enjoyed it. I found it really uh, both entertaining and, and informative. And, um, and one of the things I, one of the things I, I, I kind of stuck in my head about that. And I'm, and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher the anecdote. So please feel free to correct me, but <laughs> well, there's we, like 40 different anecdotes. I know. Right, right, right. So, um, but a majority of the, I mean, obviously the majority of the book is about, or at least a good portion of the book is about touring and, you know, and, and meeting up with readers. And, and there, I, there was a story I think you told again, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember you saying like, I, you drove like six hours or something and you went to some, in, and you're going to some bookstore for a signing. And I think like the bookstore was closed or had, or, or had gone out of business or something like that. But you had already talked about the fact that you had promoted the fact that you were going to be there. And so right. you were like, well, I'm going to stay here because I told people I was going to be here. And like people were showing up in the parking lot and you were like selling books out of your trunk. Is it, Am I getting that right? Because that's how it I was, have it. Uh, it was it was Tubby and Coos in New Orleans, a uh, really great indie bookstore. Um, and what had happened while I was on my way there, uh, they'd had a fire oh, inside okay. the store, an electrical fire. Um, so I showed up. You know, I got there like maybe hour and a half early, and uh, checked in with them. And I mean, they were almost in tears. Uh, yeah. They're like, you know, we we don't have any way to do this, and they had one of those square credit card machines. And I said, does that thing still work? And they're like, yeah, but you know, we can't, the fire marshal won't let us have anybody in the store. And I said, did my books catch on fire? And they're like, no, I'm like, all right, let's sit up out here on your, on your front sidewalk. And that's exactly what we did. Right. Um, you know, and they were, they were tickled because mm-hmm. although it comes as a surprise to me, I guess maybe a lot of authors wouldn't, wouldn't do that, but I see it as part of the job, you know, um, it's important to treat your fans with kindness and gratitude. It, it really is, but it's, it's even more important to treat booksellers and librarians with those same qualities. Um, I mean, booksellers, you know, without them, you're nothing, yeah. you know, without librarians, you're nothing. So yeah, we, we sat up, uh, on, on the sidewalk in front of the store. The store was roped off with caution tape from the fire marshal. And yeah, uh, somebody went and got a case of beer and a, a tub of ice. And, you know, everybody 
having some beers and I, I think somebody fired up a grill at one point, one of the neighbors next to the store. And we, we kind of turned it into a little block party of sorts. Yeah. In New Orleans, you can, New Orleans, you can do that. You can have alcohol on the sidewalk <laughs> for you, for you, for you young writers at home. Don't try that at home. Cause it's a New Orleans rule. Um, uh, that's yeah, that's fascinating. And and it, and it what was really interesting about the book. And what I think is interesting to talk about for for writers who maybe haven't had the opportunity to do, to do this or haven't had the level of success, I guess, to 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 qualify to do this or to have it be something that they need to do at this point is is um you you talk a lot about uh, connecting with readers, and I found it interesting. One thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about chatting with you was I was talking about like in the old days. Uh, you know, you had to get in your, I mean, you still do, but you know, to a degree, you got in your car and you drove all over the country and you shook hands and you said hello and you signed books and all that great stuff, which is, which is everybody's dream when you're a kid, right? To do the big right. book signing. And, you know, I was looking at a couple of authors who were releasing their, um, their like, uh, uh, tour schedules, quote unquote, and ha like more than half of them are virtual. And it makes me wonder how much virtual, I mean, with the between the pandemic, uh, the uh, technology, and social media, it makes me wonder how how um, how much of that touring, how much of that connecting with readers is now done virtually, and do you see that as a positive? Do you, a do you agree or disagree? And b do you see that as a positive or a negative or or something in between? That is a really interesting question. Um, I always there there are four authors in particular who I've decided to mentor and kind of take under my wing. Wesley Southerd, Stephen Kosinowski, Wiley Young, and Summer Cannon. And what I always tell the four of them is, you know, don't try to copy what I was doing 10 or 20 years ago because it's not going to work like that anymore. You know, find the, the core of it and do it your own way and adapt it to this time. And <clears throat> virtual signings seem to be one of those things. Um, and I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think more people these days, for whatever reason, and, and neither one of us are, are psychiatrists or psychologists, so we're not going to diagnose it, Philip. But right. for whatever reason, more people seem to suffer from social anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and it is difficult for them to go to a convention or to even go to a, a regional book signing, you know, at their local strip mall and meet the actual author and have to make conversation. Um, I'm very aware of that these days when I do a physical signing. If somebody doesn't want to make eye contact with their lawyer around the, around the table, I shut up. You know, I, I let them know I'm there if they have any questions, but I let them browse. Um, you know, social anxiety is a real thing. Uh, so I, I think that's one factor. But I think the other factor is just the immediacy and the ease of virtual interaction versus, you know, having to remember the date of the signing and having to get in your car and drive there. Um, you know, I don't think that virtual appearances will ever replace a good old fashioned bookstore signing. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think bookstore signings still have value. I do, however, see a time coming very, very quickly where the, these big media, mass media conventions, fan conventions are going to implode. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not talking about the really big ones like Dragon Con or, or San Diego Comic Con. You're always going to have those. 
Um, but a lot of these these smaller regional shows, uh, financially, they're just they're not going to be able to continue to do it. There's too many. Um, they're competing for the same number of you know horror movie actors and and authors and people just don't have the disposable income to do all those you know yeah uh and and i have cautioned those four authors that i mentioned i i've I've cautioned them you know cut back on the number of of fan conventions that you're doing and wesley southern I, i don't think he'd mind me sharing this he i think he did 40 or 50 shows last year and this year and, and he's he's reported that he's he's seeing sales decline so is somebody like cullen bunt who is you know a number one bestseller um so i mean it's it's spotty data but i i think the data is indicative that that those things are changing i i think the pandemic did it people were like why pay for the hassle of going to a convention when I can just, you know, do this, this online interaction thing. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly expensive. And the thing I think that, you know, I think what's interesting is, um, for, okay. For writers, even like writers like myself who, yes, I've been published, but I'm not going to attract a crowd. You know, if I go to the, if I go to Mississippi, I'm not going to attract a crowd to the bookstore. So maybe a vir- you know, so a virtual event is kind of like, okay, well, I'm not going to spend, you know, all this money to fly to Mississippi or to fly to Boston or to, to wherever, fly to New York and, you know, get a hotel room and show, you know, show up at a bookstore at two o'clock on a, on a Friday afternoon and have like, you know, a couple of people, you know, straggling. It's like, I wonder how much the, cause it's almost not that it's not valuable to meet those two people because I know it's important, but it's like, but yeah, but I just blew like three grand getting here, you know? And it's like, um, so virtually makes a lot, it makes a lot more sense for writers who maybe don't have, you know, the, the broad readership. Uh, that's, it's, that's exactly it. You know, I, uh, I run, well, I'm on the board of directors for the scares that care charity. And, and one of the events that I run for them is, uh, is a convention author con, uh, which is a, a gathering of horror authors and their readers. Um, and you know, my philosophy with that is, is we got to go big every year or we don't do it because, you know, if, if, if we're doing that in this this oversaturated convention market, then we've got to give people not one reason to show up, but 200 reasons to show up right. to spend their money with us and to have a damn good time while they're there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I just went to Necron- Necronomicon, which was a wonderful convention and I, and I enjoyed it. But um, yeah, there comes a point where you're kind of like, uh, you know, I got to start being more uh smart smarter about how i'm spending my my money to promote myself because exactly yeah so okay so i want we have we've we're, we're I, this is um, great to talk to you and i want to get to a couple more things before we run out of time we can we can go overtime i mean i don't know what your policy is on it's that, it's, it's not yeah it, it's the yeah the producer gives me 35 minutes audio hopper is the pro- producer and that's i think that's their their uh, thing for distribution purposes so audio but well yeah so but we'll get there the um but one of the things that you you i'm sure you don't remember but i i do remember i would say it was probably five years ago i was on facebook and i was you know bitching about um i don't know i don't know what i was bitching i was bitching about something about my agent i i I think i just dumped my agent uh my first agent uh i'm on my third now but 
And, um, and I was kind of lamenting it and I was kind of, you know, fidgeting about it, nervous and wondering if I'd made the right decision and stuff. And anyway, but you, you chimed in and I'll never forget it. And you said that, you know, um, you, you said you don't have an agent. And I don't know if that's still the case, but at the time, I remember you were like, you were like, I haven't had an agent and I, you know, represent myself. And I found that so fascinating. Um, and I wonder if you could, would mind talking a little bit about representation because it, it feels like when you're a new writer and you don't have any experience, it's like and getting an agent is sort of like this Mount Everest type thing. And then like, you realize when you get to the top, you know, that, <laughs> Uh, the benefits aren't what you thought they would be. You know, you're not all of a sudden, you know, closing big five deals and getting, you know, you know, there are pluses, but generally speaking, you know, that's not re it's not really the, um, you know, the, the angelic choir that people think it is. I, I w wanted to get your take on, on representation. Right. Well, we just, you know, we just talked about how there's not a lot of difference between indie publishing and big five publishing anymore. Yeah. Uh, about the only thing is that Big Five will usually pay in advance. However, some indie publishers are also starting to pay in advance. Yeah. Um, I don't know of any indie publisher that requires an agent when you submit to them. However, most of the Big Five do. Um, so what's the agent doing for you other than possibly getting you that advance of which they're going to take 10 to 15% of? Um, you know, now I cheated a little bit. My my very first novel contract, uh, it was handed to me at a, a convention, a horror convention, and I walked into the bar with it, and the great author, late great author Jack Ketchum was sitting there, and he says, what do you got there, kid? And I said, a, a contract for my first novel, and he said, buy me a drink, find a pen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to negotiate it for you. What I didn't know, what I found out was that he had been a literary agent for years and years before he ever became a writer. He, he was Philip K. Dick's agent. Uh, he was Henry S. Miller's agent. Um, so he knew what the hell he was doing. And he red penned the hell out of that contract. He handed it back to me and he said, here, follow this template. You'll never need an, an agent. And he was right. Uh, you know, I 25 years later, I, I still don't have a literary agent. Um, I've had literary agents say, you know, man, I'd love to work with you, but there's, there's nothing I could do for you or achieve for you that you can't achieve on your own. Right. Um, you know, I, if business is not your strong suit, if talking to people and selling yourself is not your strong suit, there is no shame in getting a literary agent. Okay. Or if you desperately want to get into the big five, then yeah, absolutely. You got to get a literary agent, but it's not the be all and the end all anymore, folks, just just like it is with publishing. You know, there are there are other avenues. There are other roads you can take. Um, and there's more and more authors who are finding success and are unagented. Um, however, a caveat to that, if you do sell a book without an agent, at the very least, pay one hundred dollars to a local attorney and have them go over that contract and, and point out anything you know, that, that might be a red flag. Yeah. And, and another area with that I've sort of discovered, you know, that I've been figuring out over the last call it year or two years is the whole, um, and I know you've dealt with this a lot is the whole film and television adaptation side of things. 
And that's like a whole, and if your agent is a literary agent or you don't have an agent and you get, uh, cause I have writers and I'm sure you get this too. I have writers PMing me or emailing me saying, Hey, I just got this phone call from Sony or whatever. Um, they want to option my story. <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? And to your point, step number one is you got to get an entertainment lawyer. Um, exactly. Because, yeah, not, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying I'm, I don't use an agent in interviews, but I absolutely use an entertainment lawyer uh, right. from, from film adaptations, video games, things <clears throat> like that. And the good news is, you know, if, if you've had trouble finding a literary agent, don't worry, you will not have trouble finding an entertainment lawyer. You don't need one until you get the movie option. And when you get the movie option, you can take your pick of entertainment lawyers. Yeah. And I don't know if it's an LA thing because it was, which is where I'm based or, or whatever. But I tell you the thing that, the thing that caught me and I'm just going to share my personal experience here in case it is interesting to people who might be listening is so, you know, I have a, I have someone who represents me in the film side, but they don't represent the, they don't, you know, they're not a lawyer. They don't handle the contract. And one of the things that became a problem for me specifically or personally is that I was getting these option offers for call it, for sake of discussion, you know, $2,500. And I would go find a, and I would have to go find a lawyer to look at that contract. And the lawyer would be like, no problem. I'll, I'll do it for a $3,000 retainer. Yep. And I'm like, well, well, let me just do the quick math. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not great for me. And, and, and the problem with film and TV, as you know, is the odds of that project going into development in any significant way, or even if it goes into development, <clears throat> getting to the point where they're triggering the lump sum purchase price for your story, you're talking one in 10,000. The odds are small. Have you, how do you deal with, I mean, I know, so there, and then I should say there are some lawyers who work on percentages, but that's primarily for authors like yourself who are established. What advice would you give to an author who came to you and said, Hey, look, I don't have a lawyer. I don't have an agent. Sony just called me and they want to optimize story for two grand. What do I do? What, what would be your response? If you don't mind me putting you on the spot a little bit. I mean, honestly, and I shouldn't say this cause then I'm going to get inundated, but in a case like <laughs> that, if, if it's a, if it's a dollar option or a two grand, if it's anything under 10 grand, yeah, I'm probably going to say to the author, you know what? I'm not an attorney. Nothing I'm telling you is legally binding, but send it to me. Let me look it over and see if there's any red flags. And I've done that for plenty of people Okay, um, because people used to do it for me, you know, but if it's anything, if it's anything over 10 grand, I'm going to say, yeah, you need to go find an entertainment lawyer. Right. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily look in LA. There are entertainment lawyers in every major city now. Um, yeah, I just happen to be, I just happen to live here. So that's kind of. Yeah, I mean, you know, Atlanta's full of them. Baltimore is full of them. New York, um, Chicago, you know, because the, the film industry, you know, we, we, of course, we all think of it as still being, you know, so LA centric, but, you know, it's, it's all over the place now. Yeah. Um, you know, Baton Rouge, Louisiana is big now. And, and, uh, Philadelphia and, and, you know, places up in Canada. So there are entertainment lawyers everywhere and not all of them are going to charge you three grand to go over an, an option for, you know, $2,500. Well, 
Right. Or a shopping agreement or whatever. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and to, to caveat what Brian said, do not send all your option and shopping agreements to Brian. But, um, but the point is, I think if, if find someone who's, who's been there, um, uh, uh, you know, a mentor type figure, maybe someone that you you're friendly with who's, who's been writing and publishing for, um, you know, a while and, and maybe they've been through it once and they can take a look at it. It's not rocket science to your point. It's like, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you're not giving away your rights for life for nothing. Um, exactly. you want to make sure that you're going to get paid if the movie gets, gets produced. Um, but yeah, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, place to be in. And, um, yeah. And it's kind of like, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit like cart before the horse. If you know, if you're like a new writer and you're getting these great opportunities, you're you, you, like me, you, you're kind of scrambling to try and figure out what to do and it can be a little stressful, but, but yeah, but I think it's, I think the point is if you get those, if you're in that situation, writers and you don't have representation yeah, a, see if you can find a local lawyer who can, who you can afford, who will look at it for a couple hundred bucks and just make sure there's no huge red flags or be find a mentor or somebody who's been through it, a writer who's already been through it and see if they'll take a look at it for you. Right. Um, okay. Before we go, I want to touch on Manhattan on Mars. I just, can we talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. That, it's public now. I, okay. Cause I just, yeah. Cause I read about it and I was like, Whoa, what? <laughs> because I was thought, so Manhattan on Mars and I'll let you kind of describe it. But, but my understanding from what I read is, um, you're basically sucking in all your IP and you're bringing it all, you're bringing it all into your own banner. In-house. Yep. In-house. I'm basically becoming my own indie publisher and doing it in a way that I can go head to head with the big five. Uh, meaning, you know, actual bookstore distribution, warehousing, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, it's something that JF Gonzalez and I had, had talked about doing for years and years back when Dorchester publishing went down. Mm -hmm. Um, but the technology and the, the distribution system didn't exist until now. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, these days film studios, publishers, they're not buying books. They're not buying movies. They're buying intellectual property that, you know, that that's what they want is intellectual property. And I, I have enough of a fan base and enough of a following that, when I'm dead, you know, I'm 55, it could happen. When I'm dead, I don't want my sons having to deal with, you know, 50 different publishers trying to get paid every month. They're trying to figure out who has the rights to what. Right. Uh, so I, I want to gather everything back in-house, uh, bring it all out via this, this publishing imprint, uh, you know, do bookstore distribution via this publishing imprint, um, and and just make it easier for my kids when I'm gone. Right. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of, I see all these, these indie authors that are, you know, they have their own imprints and that's awesome. Um, we don't see it a lot with people who have bigger followings and, and bigger sales records and have been doing this for so long. Um, and I think we should, I think, I think we should see that. I think more of us need to, start taking responsibility for what we've been doing these last 30 years. Cause you know, we, we have loved ones we're going to leave behind that we want to benefit from this stuff. So this is my way of doing that. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting about, it, and the two names that pop into my head who have done similar ventures, uh, Brandon Sanderson made a big splash Yep. when he announced he was going to do, start doing everything in house. And, um, 
and take all his IP back. And I, I think he, I don't know if he's I don't know if he's going. I think I don't know if he's leaving stuff with, you know, the with publishers who have the rights. But but I know he's doing a similar branding thing. And Adam Neville comes to mind. Yes, you know who started his own publishing and, and controls all his own IP intellectual mm-hmm. property. And it's fascinating. And what I think is interesting about it too, and I think what is noteworthy about it, and I ran into this very early on in my very short writing career, publishing career, I should say, is man, authors, when you sign a contract, don't just think about, oh, I'm signing a contract for a book or I'm signing a contract for an anthology. You're signing, you're giving somebody rights to your intellectual property. Exactly. You're giving somebody rights to your creative output. And those rights have to be <laughs> narrow. Like they have to be restricted to the purpose for which that publisher is, you know, is, is doing a deal with you because there are, and I've signed them, Brian, you know, and I've, re- and I know other authors who have signed similar deals where like, you're just not, you're not thinking of, you're not thinking about rights. You're thinking about how much are they paying me? When's the book coming out? What's the cover going to look like? And it's like, man, but you know, it's like a, it's almost like a, you know, a, a sleight of hand. Next thing you know, that publisher owns the rights to your content, to your intellectual property in perpetuity. Exactly. And that's exactly. like the biggest, worst thing you can do as a writer is to make that mistake. And that's what's fascinating to me about what you're doing. Because if you had run it, if you had, you know, as a young writer done that, you'd be in for a fight. Getting Oh, yeah. Fight. Well, I've, been, I've had to go through those fights. Uh, you know, there, there were some cases... Uh, you know, publishers, including big five publishers who, who, you know, they had that clause in there. It was the time before eBooks and they had the clause in there, you know, as long as it stays in print and sells X amount of copies. Well, then this new thing called eBooks comes along and that never factored in to that original contract, did it? Um, You know, luckily these days I do have all my rights back. Um, The only reason I haven't taken everything out of print from the various publishers and started just bam, mass releasing everything through Manhattan on Mars is, is quite frankly, I don't want to crash the market. Right. Um, I know I recognize the financial situation. I'd be putting a number of these publishers in if I did that. Uh, so I want to do it very slowly stage it, you know, communicate clearly with them throughout, you know, it, it's going to be a, a three to five year process to, to get everything back you know, in-house and, and imprint through, through Manhattan on Mars. But like, like I've done with everything in my career, I'm going to document it publicly. And as I told Jonathan Jans, you know, if it works, then I've left behind a roadmap of how everybody else can do it. And if I fall on my face and the whole thing blows up on me, I've left behind a cautionary tale of what not to do. (laughs) Right. I have a feeling you're going to do fine. And um, and okay, so I'm actually interested. So, and I'm sure people listening to are so you your blog when you document your stuff like that. You talk about you you do this on your website, or where can people find these days? I do it on Patreon, um, and okay. I, I hate to put it behind a paywall because I'm one of those people. If I'm reading a news story and it's behind a paywall, I immediately go to find the Google cached version of the article. Right, but. Uh, you know, I've also got kids to feed. So these days, all my blogging takes place on Patreon. Uh, $5 a month gives you access to everything I've ever written there and everything I'll ever write there. 
Um, but eventually anything that's on patron appears in print. Uh, so the next time I put a nonfiction collection out, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of starting Manhattan on Mars press up, I'm, I'm sure will be collected in that and available for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's such a, it's such a, um, I, I was just so impressed uh, when I saw that because it's such a cool thing to be able to do because I think it's kind of like uh, self-publishing on steroids. You know, it's like, because um, that's a great thing about self-publishing, right? Is you like, you're controlling, you know, your own content, you're controlling how it's distributed, you're controlling how it looks. And the best part, you're getting like 90% instead of 10% yep. of every book you sell. And if you, yeah, and you don't have to worry about running into interference if somebody wants to reprint one of your stories you know you're the one who controls that story if uh, sony shows up and wants to make a movie out of one of your stories you control those rights and i so i think it's it's a it's kind of a it's a sort of a wonderful end game um so i find it i find it interesting and i think uh and it's kind of one of those things where it's like yeah if you're self-publishing um there are a lot of positives um, I think we, we you know, bring it back full circle It's distribution and ultimately distribution and marketing. But from what I understand really quickly, I would love to hear your take on this. Cause I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Christopher Golden, who said this publicly on my podcast. And he was like, you know, it's harder, you know, big five, the marketing machines behind big five is not what it used to be. It is not. Yeah. Um, I, I know intimately the struggles Chris has gone through in that regard and, and other friends of ours, Tim Levin, Levin, Ronald Malfi, and others. Mm -hmm. um, my own partner, Mary San Giovanni. Um, not so much with with her Alien novel for Titan. They've been amazing, but uh, you know her her horror novels through Kensington. There was there was very little marketing, and and I don't think that's anyone's fault necessarily. Uh, you know, the big five they have to make cuts just like everybody else. Right. Uh, they don't have these big marketing teams anymore and you know at the same time they're publishing more authors than ever um so it, it's it's it really has become a necessary evil for authors uh you know I, and whether you have social anxiety or not you, you got to figure out a way to let people know that your book is out. I've never had a problem with that. I grew up wanting to be David Lee Roth and Howard Stern. So, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about talking about myself, <laughs> right. but uh, you know, for others, I get it. I empathize, but you got to find something that's comfortable for you. Something that, that, you know, you're okay doing and, and reach readers that way. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I pointed to this recently um, and I, I, you know, I read a tweet the other day by a writer and she was like so wait a minute you're telling me that not only do i have to write the book i have to build a website i have to create a social media presence i have to you know come up with uh, my own plan for you know marketing i have to find a publisher and i was like and i remember seeing that tweet and my reply my reply was yep yeah because unless unless her name is bentley little yes yeah. to all of that yeah um, okay. Well, we're out of time before we go and I'm going to put you on the, I apologize. I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit just cause that, but I'm curious because you've been doing it for so long. What would, if you could pick up, if you could pluck one piece of advice and go back in a time machine and talk to 25 year old Brian Keene, what's the one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Write every day. 
Uh, better authors than me have said it, but that's because it's true. You know, write every day, even if it's just 10 minutes a day. Yeah, I, what I tell people is write every day, and, but also, and I, and, I, and I know you said similar things, write, create your own schedule, but then when you, cre- based on your life, if it's 10 minutes a day, if it's an hour a day, if it's a Thursday, if it's Friday, if it's midnight, if it's 5 a.m., whatever it is. But then once you figure out what that is, what that time is, stick to it. Yes. Because that's the hard part. Is, yep. Okay. Is doing it right, doing it every day or, you know, finding that time and just sticking to it and making that your writing time. Even if it's 200 words or 20 minutes of, you know, not you know gibberish yeah it, it, it adds up 200 words at the end of two weeks you've got a short story at the end of the year you've got a novel yeah. you know yeah um all right well listen we're out of time brian this has been an amazing talk and i really appreciate you coming on the dark word and and i know that everybody listening is going to get so much out of this episode so i appreciate you. it to me hand me back anytime we'll, we'll do a multi-parter awesome awesome <laughs> Uh, and uh, for all you guys listening, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, more episodes to come. And I look forward to speaking with you all next time on The Dark Word. Audio Hopper.